Thank you all for coming. As uh, many of you know, uh, the Mershon Center uh, each year awards a Furnace Book Award winner, uh, board to an author whose first book has made an important contribution, we think, uh, to the study of security and international relations, broadly understood. And the Furnace Award commemorates um, Edgar S. Furnace, who was the founding director of the Mershon Center long ago. And this year's winner, I'm very happy to introduce, is Aaron Jenny, who's an associate professor of international relations at the European University in Central, well, the European Studies at the Central European University uh, in Budapest, Hungary. She teaches on subjects of nationalism, uh, civil war, international relations, and ethnic bargaining. The award-winning book is Ethnic Bargaining, The Paradox of Minority Empowerment, which was published by Cornell last year. And in that book, Aaron lays out a theory of minority empowerment that uh, builds on essentially a realist foundation of uh, opportunity and power. I'm sure she'll explain more of it, mm -hmm. uh, some of which is contingent on external support that minority communities um, receive. And she tries to explain two things, both the substantial increase, which she documents, of minority demands for secession, and then which ones become uh, salient to people at different moments. Uh, she finds uh, support for her theory in a series of case studies, some of which I suspect we're going to hear about in a few minutes. Uh, she's working on a second book that went over the Internet the last couple of weeks we've communicated, and she told us she'll give a preview a little bit oh, of I where this project, the new project, is headed, <laughs> which compares the League of Nations regional security regime with the, post, with the regime emerging here in post-communist Europe. And she hopes to determine which instruments of post-conflict resolution have been more successful, strategies of partition compared to strategies of integration, uh, for instance. Uh, she's published already in International Security or International Studies Quarterly and some other places. But without further ado, I want to do two things before I sit down. I want to give you the Furnace Award, oh, which you. involves <laughs> some money and a, uh, a plaque. Oh, okay. And you can see the previous winners on the back wall, and they're some pretty distinguished people. So yeah, I noticed. <laughs> if your career goes as well as most of theirs, this mm -hmm. is a good omen. And uh, we're we glad to have you here. Uh, and we have a copy for you to take mm -hmm. home with. So without further ado, Erin Jenny. Oh, thank you. Uh, thank you, John, for that very kind and effusive introduction. I hope I can live up to at least some of this. Um, I first want to say what an honor it is for me to be with you today to share my work and obviously how thrilled I was to learn that my book was given the prestigious um, Furnace Prize. It is a bit intimidating to look back to previous winners and hope that I can measure at least uh, up to some extent. Um, Hopefully that is a good omen. Um, my book, which originated out of my dissertation, um, began with the observation that ethnic minority demands shift often rapidly over time from uh, relatively extreme demands, such as secession or irredentism, to more mild or moderate demands, uh, such as regional autonomy, cultural, or linguistic rights. Um, and uh, that this happens often in the absence of uh, obvious security or economic uh, incentives to do so. Um, so this then became the focus of my project, explaining why it is that mainstream leaders of ethnic groups 
do in fact shift their demands over time uh, for, not, for reasons that are not immediately clear um, to observers. Um, so uh, the dependent variable here is uh, conceptualized on a continuum of minority challenge against the government. Um, so in this view, minority demands are seen less as true reflections of group preferences and more as a kind of proxy of minority challenge against the government. And so in this sense, they are effectively bargaining tools that minority groups use to extract concessions from the center or government. Um, and as you can see, uh, the more extreme demands here, uh, secessionary identism and uh, below that territorial autonomy, um, to, to satisfy these demands requires actually alteration of the state framework. Um, and this stands in contrast to less extreme demands such as cultural autonomy or affirmative action, which can largely be accommodated within the existing um, state framework. Um, so, and this is widely understood um, by all actors who are involved in the process of ethnic bargaining. So um, what are some possible explanations for this? Uh, this is a sort of a rough schema of theories that can possibly explain um, radical minority demands. And I've uh, divided them broadly into structural and dynamic theories. So structural theories rely on relatively static factors, such as ethnic differences or economic differences between um, the group, the minority group, and the dominant group. Um, and also um, existence of autonomous structures, um, which is another um, structural factor to explain radical minority demands. Um, and I would argue that while these theories help identify which groups are likely to make these kinds of radical demands, um, they don't really help us very much in explaining the timing of radicalization, why it is that groups make more extreme demands at some times than at others. Um, so moving on to the dynamic theories of um, minority radicalization, these do provide an answer for the timing of radicalization um, because they identify a variable in the picture um, that can explain this variable of minority demands, whereas up here with the structural theories you have this you know, minority preferences, which, you know, have exogenous sort of determinants. And then there's a big question mark. What is it exactly that sort of triggers um, radicalization based on these structural factors? Um, so moving to my uh, dynamic theories, um, one set of theories focuses on elites, um, the emergence of nationalizing or extremist elites um, to explain radicalization. And the idea here is that um, uh, elites may um, emerge uh, who, who benefit from playing the ethnic card. Um, and so they, in doing so, this leads to minority, minority radicalization. Um, the problem with these arguments, of course, is that extremist, opportunistic elites uh, exist um, practically anywhere where there's a, a politically salient or mobilized minority. However, it is a very uh, um, small subset of these elites who manage to mobilize popular support for these demands. 
Um, so uh, it would look, it would seem that the ethnic elites um, are actually epiphenomenal to the larger sort of process um, by which minorities radicalize. Um, so a second set of theories, which is actually, I think, a little bit more dominant in the literature, focuses on ethnic fears. Um, and uh, closely associated with this is the credible commitment problem um, identified by Weingast and Fearon. I'm sure most of you, or many of you, um, are familiar with these theories. Um, and these, of course, build on the concept of the security dilemma, ethnic security dilemma, that was first identified by Posen in the early 1990s. So um, the idea here is that uh, state collapse or regime change uh, creates conditions of extreme uncertainty on the part of minorities that lead them, in the absence of this overarching security structure, to, um, to seek to maximize their own security, and this then leads to um, incentives to preemptively strike if they fear that not doing so will lead to victimization by the majority government or other um, or groups that they happen to be in conflict with. So like elite explanations, I deal extensively with these theories, this alternative theory in my case analysis. But here I think it's uh, interesting or instructive to look at a list of um, post-World War II secessionist movements, um, and this is compiled from the Minorities at Risk and data set housed at University of Maryland. Um, and I basically classified these according to the origins of the movements themselves. And as you can see, um, this increased repression, right, this notion that um, when the majority actually uh, um, increases its sort of you know, repressive or suppressive policies against uh, a certain minority group, they will become fed up or they will you know, act out, they will you know, radicalize to protect themselves. This actually uh, describes a fair minority of secessionist movements. And as you can see, the large um, majority of post-war secessionist movements, sorry that you can't read the small type, but you got to trust me, um, actually occurred after or in anticipation of regime change. Um, but it's important also then to look at uh, within this um, subset of secessionist groups to note that um, actually a majority of them emerged in cases where the center was relatively weak rather than uh, strong and threatening as expected by um, the credible commitment theories and um, security dilemma explanations. Okay. So, um, right. So, moving to the final theory that I had up on the on, on a previous slide, theory of ethnic bargaining. Um, basically, uh, the argument is that ethnic groups mobilize around elites who make more extreme demands, such as territorial autonomy or secession. Um, in response to perceived increase in bargaining leverage um, against the central government with which it is negotiating, um, and vice versa. When there's a decrease in perceived leverage on the part of the minority group, this will lead to a moderation of demands on the part of the group against the central government. And so what are the sources of these perceived shifts in leverage? Um, I, I've identified two broad sources, one external, and the second internal. Um, the first, which kind of appears um, more um, 
it's more salient in my argument is that increased support from external actors, what I call lobby actors, um, and these may include foreign governments, um, diaspora groups, military alliances, international organizations, any powerful actor that intervenes um, on behalf of the minority in its relations um, with the government. Um, and so what's important here is not these primordial ties between these external actors, what you know, Rogers Brubaker calls the national homelands. What matters is, is not these links, not these primordial ties, but rather the action of intervening on behalf of the minority group. Because as you can see in the cases of China and Russia, in very many cases of you know, ethnic minorities in peripheral, peripheral states, um, China and Russia have declined to intervene on their behalf, right? And so what really matters here is their action um, and not this sort of, um, these ethnic ties um, broadly understood. Um, right, and so the second source of perceived power um, is a, a decreased in institutional capacity on the part of the central government. And this relates basically to the um, dyadic relationship between the minority and the government. Um, when the government is relatively less powerful for whatever reason, because it may be battling other sort of secessionist groups or because of regime change or you know, any other factor, um, this leads minority groups who are mobilized um, to perceive a relatively uh, greater um, power shift vis-a-vis um, -vis the central government. And so this is a second source of perceived power. Okay, so who are the players in the model? So I identify the minority, the majority, which I more or less use interchangeably with dominant group, um, central government, center, state. Um, it's basically the... Um, the state-bearing nation in, in the state. And, uh, and third, the lobby actor, which I said can be pretty much any powerful actor that intervenes on behalf of the minority. So um, this may look familiar for those of you who are familiar with um, Rogers Brubaker's triadic nexus, um, this triadic relationship between um, these three, I think he calls them represent representational fields. Um, and the idea here is that a radicalization within one of these fields leads to a radicalization in another, and it works the other way as well. Moderation in one of the fields leads to moderation in another. But he remains more or less agnostic about, um, you know, where radicalization emerges from. It could, it could occur in any of these three representational fields, and this is where I strongly depart from Rogers Brubaker. And... The reason for this uh, is that um, I'm looking at it from the standpoint of, you could call it maybe neoclassical realist understanding of inter-ethnic relations in the sense that the minority is understood as strategically vulnerable um, and as needing to constantly sort of monitor the actions of the two most important players um, you know, that, that impact on its uh, uh, status in the state. Um, uh, the other two actors, the lobby actor, assuming one exists, which doesn't always, um, and the uh, majority, they have to respond to a number of different inputs. 
Um, they have many, many other pressures, many other concerns other than, let's say, protecting a minority or oppressing a minority, what have you. And so, uh, and so there's understood that radicalization and moderation largely originates in um, the actions of the lobby actor and or the majority um, uh, state government. Okay. And I also wanted to say here that the model is not intended to essentialize these three entities. Um, it's understood that they are, as Brubaker's says, socially constructed. Um, ethnic bargaining model is intended only to explain how the conditions under which, given that institutions and individuals organize themselves in this way, according to this framework, what are the conditions under which this will lead to uh, minority radicalization as opposed to moderation? Um, so, broadly speaking, what is a minority looking for? Uh, first, it's looking to see whether the majority is, has repressive intent or non-repressive intent, and uh, on the side of the lobby actor, whether the lobby actor is intending to support or not support Minority. So it's looking for these two um, broadly different sort of intentions on the part of these two powerful players um, in its universe. Okay. So this is basically this is basically um, the model of ethnic bargaining, um, and this is basically a representation of um, the combinations of the two types of actors. Um, the majority and um, the lobby actor. Um, uh, and these combine to create four perceived states of the world, which each yield different prediction concerning likely minority behavior given perceptions that it is in that state of the world as opposed to another one. Okay, so the first state of the world is one of conflict. Um, right here, uh, here basically the minority perceives the majority to be repressive or having repressive intent, while at the same time its lobby actor is supportive or appears uh, intending to support the minority. Here the minority radicalizes in order to obtain concessions. However, this uh, state of the world is most uh, prone to conflict, I would argue, because a repressive majority is possibly likely to uh, refrain from stepping down, from backing down in the face of an interventionist lobby actor due to audience costs. So this state of the world is most prone to inter-ethnic conflict and possibly even international conflict between the lobby actor and um, the majority. Uh, the second state of the world is the one that's most advantageous to the minority and that is the one of opportunity. Um, here, the majority is perceived to be non-repressive, and uh, its lobby actor is uh, perceived to be supportive. And here, the minority will radicalize, uh, expecting concessions um, from the government, and is likely also to receive them. So um, the third state of the world is actually the most disadvantageous to the minority. Here, this is a state of vulnerability. Here, the majority is uh, perceived to be repressive, while at the same time its lobby actor is seen to be non-supportive, 
And here, paradoxically, the minority then chooses to accommodate, not to radicalize, um, even though it expects to suffer repression from a repressive um, majority because it wants to avoid overt conflict from a sort of exposed, uh, strategically vulnerable position since it does not have the support from the outside. And then finally, we have the state of peace. Um, uh, This is the happy state of the world where good things emerge. Um, And here the minority expects the um, majority to be non-repressive and the lobby actor to be non-supportive. And here basically the minority will accommodate expecting uh, peace and this facilitates interethnic coalitions. And this is sort of a a place where I would expect a different type of behavior um, in terms of electoral coalitioning. Um, between the minority and the majority. So basically, um, in, in the first three states of the world, uh, political actors tend to, because the ethnic cleavage is very salient, form these intra-ethnic coalitions on either side, mm-hmm. on the majority side and the minority side. However, when, uh, it, when, when it perceives that there's a state of peace, the ethnic cleavage loses its salience um, relative to other non-ethnic cleavages such as class. And under these circumstances, political actors have an incentive to ally along common economic lines in order to lobby more effectively for their constituents' um, economic interests. And so you'll see this realignment of political actors in this state of peace. Right, but the coalitions, the interesting coalitions, come after. They come after these signals um, by this lobby actor, assuming one exists, and the majority. And that's an, that's an important sort of um, sequential point. Um, no, this is right. So this this intra-ethnic, intra-ethnic coalition. Right, is assumed to basically exist when you have the first three states of the world. The inter-ethnic coalitions are assumed to be more likely under conditions of the state of peace, and that's why the fourth state of the, of the world is, is so um, important analytically for, for our purposes. Okay, um, so very briefly, a few words about measurement. Very exciting topic, always. Um, group claims, which is the analytical focus of my project, um, is basically uh, measured as the most salient goals outlined in public speeches and campaign literature by the organization or leader that claims to represent um, the group. And this, uh, the focus is on the most popular um, party, the one that has received the plurality of ethnic support in the most recent um, elections. Okay, and then um, secondarily, there are the claims made by the leader or party that is seen as the de facto representative of the ethnic group. Okay, so this this actually becomes more relevant in less democratic um, systems. Uh, and then um, wherever I could, I performed a robustness check by um, looking at public opinion polls to see um, which a type of claim actually had the most support, enjoyed the most support um, within a particular ethnic population, within the minority population. Okay, so the two um, independent variables 
are measured similarly. First of all, the majority signals of repressive or non-repressive intent are basically measured as treaties or pacts, domestic policies, or public statements in descending order of credibility, right? Um, made by the top officials that indicate the majority's commitment to engage or refrain from uh, minority discrimination, right? So this signals that of the, the majority's intent to pursue one path vis-a-vis -vis the minority versus another. And then similarly, the lobby actor, its signals of interventionist or non-interventionist intent are basically um, treaties, pacts, policies, foreign policies, usually in this case, um, and public statements made by officials that indicate its uh, a willingness to support the minority um, in its challenge of the government, of the center. Okay. And then principles of case selection. Um, very important here. Uh, first, for those of you who have read the book or know anything about it, you'll notice that all of the cases come from Central and Eastern Europe. And uh, the reason for this is, of course, not only my own sort of knowledge of these cases, but also because um, selecting cases from a common um, geographical um, uh, area allows us to achieve many controls on factors that are born of this common geography, which in this case is or includes um, similar communist legacies, similar sort of um, policies towards um, nationalities um, during the uh, communist era. And also in, in today, um, in the contemporary period, um, the similar position of the states vis-a-vis um, -vis the West. In this case, mostly they're concerned about the EU and NATO. Okay. Um, within the empirical chapters, I conduct a series of paired comparisons. The first one is a comparative analysis of Hungarians, the Hungarian minorities in Romania and Slovakia in the post-communist period. Um, and this is undertaken in order to, in, in some sense, control for the actions of the lobby actor, which in this case they have in common, in order to isolate the influence of the majority of the, the majority of the state to see if um, the actions of that majority have a predicted impact on minority behavior. And then um, kind of mere image of this, I also undertake a comparative analysis of Hungarians and um, Albanians in Serbia. And this is done to control for um, the actions or influence of the majority, which they have in common, and to isolate the influence of the lobby actor, which, um, which they do not have in common. Um, Hungary, in the case of Hungarians in Vojvodina, and Albania, and later NATO, in the case of the Kosovo Albanians. So what impact do ha does having these different lobby actors um, have on the actions of the minority when it's facing common policies by the, the Serbian majority. And then finally, um, I conducted a longitudinal analysis of uh, the behavior of Sudeten Germans in the inter in interwar Czechoslovakia. And this was largely done in order to, to um, check to see whether this model actually travels across time. Does it also explain ethnic bargaining in, uh, in periods beyond or previous to um, the post-Cold War period. Um, and then the other reason, 
is that uh, doing so allows me to explain a complete cycle of ethnic demand. So there's uh, extreme variation um, within inter interwar Czechoslovakia on Sudeten German demands. Um, right. So a few, um, a few brief points. I'm just going to go through this case in order to illustrate um, how the ethnic bargaining model can be used to explain shifts in minority behavior. Um, and I wanted to use the case of the Sudeten Germans in order to illustrate this. Um, before doing so, though, um, for those of you who are slightly, a little bit, tiny bit rusty on interwar um, European history, at least in the case of Czechoslovakia, um, basically the Allies um, created the Czechoslovak state in 1918 um, amid the wreckage of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, um, and this was partly driven out of a concern for national self-determination, giving the Czechs and the Slovaks this national state. There were also um, realpolitik interests that came into play, um, uh, placing a check on a potential reemergent um, Austria and Germany. Um, so this is basically a demographic map that shows that uh, the principle of national self-determination was not exactly followed to the letter in this case. As you can see, um, these areas, these shaded areas, um, indicate areas of high concentrations of ethnic Germans. And so they're basically concentrated in the border regions of the historic Czech lands of Bohemia and Moravia. Um, you can also see here, um, this, is, this is largely Hungarian territory. Um, so the Czechs and Slovaks were hardly making up the overwhelming majority of the new Czechoslovak state. And this is something that the Sudeten German minority was um, very unhappy about, to say the least, um, partly because they had enjoyed under the previous regime extensive advantages, economic and political advantages, vis-a-vis -vis the Czechs. And uh, they were concerned legitimately that um, not only were these privileges going to end, but the Czechs may actually take the opportunity to turn the tables um, on the Germans. So that's the kind of setup for this case. And I also have mapped the most dominant, most salient demand that enjoyed um, the uh, majority support um, among the Sudeten Germans within each time period. And as you can see, um, it, it cycles from most extreme demands of irredentism and secession, or irredentism, rather, and um, separatism in uh, late um, 1918, the founding of the state, um, and um, up until 1920, um, broad territorial autonomy, um, all the way in the late 1920s to quite moderate demands um, for uh, educational rights for the Sudeten Germans, um, linguistic rights, and so on. So this is a, a quite um, radical shift on the part of the Sudeten Germans. And then, as um, pretty much I'm sure all of us know, the, the end of the story is not as happy. Um, they cycle back to more um, extreme demands of irredentism and uh, separatism um, by the late 1930s. 
So this then is in a way a, a full cycle of um, claim making by the Sudeten Germans. So, um, all right, so I want to just kind of sketch out how this happened um, in these six periods that I've outlined explaining sort of the shifts and demands. Um, in, uh, at the end of World War I, the Czech majority, since they were kind of leading the Czechoslovak nation, uh, began to create this national state um, and in doing so um, began to remove German privileges um, through by closing many German schools, um, language laws um, that uh, enforced a, a new policy that all civil servants would have to speak Czech within a certain period of time, and also agricultural reform that basically redistributed land that was predominantly held um, in German hands to unlanded people who were predominantly Czechs. So this was seen as a fairly repressive um, act by the Czech majority. At the same time, uh, Austria, Austrian and German governments um, were signaling strong uh, interventionist intent. The peace conference was still going on, and uh, the Austrian and German governments were encouraging the Sudeten Germans to create provisional governments that would be independent from the Czechoslovak government in the border regions, which you can't see anymore. Um, and the idea was that after, um, after the creation of Austro-Germany, these regions would then be annexed um, to create a pan-German state, and that they would be able to convince the allies to make the border adjustments that would allow that to happen. And so that is, in fact, what happened. Um, there was this perceived state of conflict on the part of the minority where you had this repressive uh, majority and a supportive, uh, in this case, two lobby actors. Um, and uh, the de facto Sudeten German leader, Rudolf Lodgman, uh, he basically helped to create these um, provisional governments. He was encouraging them, the creation of these governments, and encouraging them to uh, uh, resist uh, any um, act by the Czechoslovak state to dissolve these governments. Um, and he was also calling for a pan-German state. So um, moving on to the second period, um, 1919, this is a very sort of uh, historical shift at this point. This is basically the end of the peace conference. And at this point, Germany and Austria in successive treaties of Versailles and St. Germain um, basically um, had renounced their territorial claims on Czechoslovakia in, in, in these two treaties. Um, and basically, they told uh, their co-ethnics in the form of lodgemen and, um, and others that they would have to fend for themselves, that they would have to basically learn to coexist um, with the Czechs in this new state. Um, and at this point, uh, the Sudeten German claims, the most dominant claims, shifted, um, not because in this case um, Lodgman really changed his claims. He remained extreme, but he lost power. He lost his leadership position relative to Josef Seliger, who was the head of the German Social Democrats, who um, won the um, local elections in 1919, and he was basically calling for a much more activist position 
with a Czechoslovak state and, uh, and was no longer calling for irredentist, irredentist um, uh, solution to the problem, but rather broad territorial autonomy within Czechoslovakia. At this point, the provisional governments were dissolved without bloodshed. So this is a very, very rapid, a very dramatic shift in um, group demands that clearly had everything to do with what was happening outside of the borders. Okay. Um, right, and just to recap, this was the state of vulnerability that they were um, in, leading them to accommodate their demands. Okay. Um, so 1920 to 1925 is kind of more of the same. Uh, basically, the Czechoslovak state is, uh, or the government is continuing to signal its intent to consolidate a national state and remove these privileges that the Germans had enjoyed under the previous regime. Um, and at the same time, basically, uh, Germany and Austria, they had problems of their own. They had their own sort of communist insurgencies, problems with food shortages, and so on, and simply did not want to deal with the Sudeten Germans. Um, they had bigger fish, fish to fry, so to say. Um, so they were continuing to signal a non-supportive intent, um, leading the minority to perceive a continued state of vulnerability. Um, and as a result of that, they in fact um, maintained their position of moderate demands, uh, moderating further to demands for regional autonomy. And at this point, they enter the parliament, the national parliament, to begin to work with um, you know, the Czech, Czechoslovak parties um, for some revisions in the laws that can kind of, you know, um, minimize um, the perceived damage that, that these laws were doing to their national interests. Okay, um, and the next period, the fourth period, this is um, quite dramatic in Czechoslovak history. Um, in 1925, Germany signs the Locarno Treaty with the Allies, um, and this has two important effects for the purposes of um, minority in Czechoslovakia. Uh, one is that it allowed Germany to enter the League of Nations and actually got a seat on the Security Council, um, from which point it could actively lobby on behalf of its co-ethnics in neighboring states. So this. Uh, this actually was a major shift um, uh, on the part of Germany vis-a-vis -vis its co-ethnics in neighboring states. Um, and uh, this basically led to a de facto ethnic pact, what's been called the Locarno Peace, um, between the Czechs and, uh, and Germans within Czechoslovakia. Um, but really, actually, you can kind of boil it down to a very, you know, realist story about the fact that the still weakened um, German state had no interest in antagonizing the Allied powers by actively supporting its co-ethnics over the border, um, while at the same time, for the first time, Czechoslovakia could no longer um, rely on um, Britain and France uh, to intervene directly in case um, in case they antagonized Germany and Germany intervened. Because the second part of the Locarno Treaty, of course, was that it removed uh, guarantees of Germany's eastern borders. And so um, Czechoslovakia and Poland no longer had this direct guarantee um, by the Allied powers against Germany. So it's a ma major shift, major geopolitical shift that occurred 
as a result of this treaty. Um, this then actually uh, signified a state of peace where neither um, the Germany nor um, the Czechoslovak majority had anything to gain really from uh, engaging in sort of nationalist policies on either side. Um, this then had predictable results um, for the Sudeten German minority and for inter-ethnic coalitions. Um, not only did the demands uh, moderate further to cultural autonomy, um, equal employment for Germans in civil service in Czechoslovakia. These were the demands that people were calling for, more German schools. Um, but we actually see a realignment of political coalitions um, between 1920 and um, 1929. So that basically um, in 1920, essentially you have two broad blocks in parliament. You have um, these five Czechoslovak parties, um, which were collectively known as the Pietka, and they were basically running the Czech Czechoslovak state. And they ranged from the right to the left, right? So there's no sort of common underlying economic interest or, or any sort of social interest that they had that was uh, allying them, apart from the fact that they weren't Germans. Um, for their part, uh, there were, I mean, each of these parties has a counterpart on the German side, and they all were allied from the left to the right um, and what, in what was known as a German parliamentary club. Okay, and so these were the kind of these broad blocks, and there were some sort of um, alliances, provisional alliances that occurred in the early 20s, but nothing formal, certainly. Um, basically, in 1926, um, the Christian socialists, the Germans and the Czechs, um, allied and uh, became the sort of um, you know, allied um, Christian socialist bloc. And um, at the same time, the German and Czech agrarians, more on the right, um, they allied as well. They entered government in what was known as a gentleman's coalition. Um, and the first inter-ethnic um, government in interwar Czechoslovakia. Later on in the 1920s, you actually had pretty much all of the parties finding partners on the other side of um, you know, the ethnic divide, um, including the Social Democrats, the German and Czech Social Democrats. The communists had already joined forces, um, and they were basically joined in opposing many of the agrarian reforms um, and social policies that were being enacted um, by this sort of gentleman's coalition. Um, and so also the things that were debated and fought over in parliament no longer really focused on ethnic issues, but rather more economic concerns. Um, right, so moving back uh, to the story, in the 1930s, uh, basically uh, describes a sort of a trend backwards towards minority radicalization. Um, basically, in the early 1930s, a global economic crisis emerged, which hit the relatively industrialized Sudeten region disproportionately. Um, they relied largely on export-oriented um, industries, uh, and they were losing their markets, um, uh, principally by Germany. Um, which was actually su supporting its own industries and not the Germans, the Sudeten Germans over the border. 
Um, and, uh, and so the Sudeten region was, was, suffered much higher unemployment uh, than the interior of Czechoslovakia, and this led to uh, Sudeten German complaints that they were being discriminated against by the Czechs um, because of this disproportionate suffering uh, that, they, that they were um, experiencing. Um, this uh, also coincided with a uh, German uh, decision not to um, actively, to continue its uh, relatively um, closed or non-interventionist stance towards the Sudeten Germans, um, leading them to believe that they were back in the state of vulnerability. Um, and under which, in which case, they did not actually radicalize their demands, but they did remobilize along ethnic lines. And so the elections of 1929, very different from the elections of 1935, because the vast majority of the Sudeten German vote in 1929 went to the moderate um, German parties, which were now in parliament. In uh, 1935, this, there had been a sea change. Uh, of um, popular support um, away from these moderate parties and towards um, the, uh, the Sudeten Nazi Party and later the Sudeten German Party um, uh, that was led by Konrad Henlein. Uh, so, uh, and at this point also inter-ethnic coalitions and government, they, they remained, but they were increasingly under pressure by Henlein's uh, SDP that was out of um, government. Um, and then finally, uh, in, in 1936, we start to see a, a shift in um, uh, German, in the Nazi German policies towards co-ethnics in neighboring states. They begin to signal openly that they are concerned about the status of their co-ethnics in Germany and, and Poland, or I'm sorry, uh, Poland and Czechoslovakia in particular. Um, and uh, this then leads them to um, appear to be uh, relatively supportive towards the co-ethnics. Um, at the same time, interestingly, uh, the Czechoslovak government could see what was happening and uh, began to uh, make very conciliatory offers um, to um, Henlein, um, offering in one quite extreme case to um, enact a, a, an institution of broad uh, confeder um, federalist um, uh, um, state structure um, that would give extreme maximal autonomy to the Sudeten regions. Um, this Henlein uh, rejected, and they continued to escalate their demands um, all the way from broad territorial autonomy and federalism to irredentism. Um, this uh, has what are now infamous um, results, basically the Sudeten German parties that were still left in government. They finally left in 1938. It was simply not viable to be a moderate uh, Sudeten party. All moderates in the group were targeted and sanctioned. Um, and uh, ultimately, um, the Sudeten Germans joined when uh, Nazi Germany invaded occupied and dismembered Czechoslovakia um, with, again, infamous results, quite tragic results, which is that um, after World War II, the Czechs basically expelled the entire 
sedate and German minority, three million people, upwards of 300,000 were killed in the process. Um, and so the policy implications are um, fairly clear. Um, this, this provides support to the notion of the moral hazard of intervention. Um, and that is that intervening to protect beleaguered minorities may paradoxically encourage minority rebellion, provoking a government backlash. And this is then the title of my book, um, Ethnic Bargaining, The Paradox of Minority Empowerment. This is what it refers to. Um, and then secondly, uh, more concretely, removing rogue regimes or implementing uh, minority protections may do little if uh, or so long as there are external actors that are actively fueling a resistance. Okay, so this then leads me to my current research project where I'm going to give you a brief overview of, I don't know how I'm doing on time. Hmm? All right, I can do that. All right. So this is a, a book that was funded by the Carnegie Corporation and is still in progress. It's uh, provisionally entitled Europe's Long Struggle with Ethnic Conflict from the League of Nations to the European Union. And uh, basically it asks, uh, it, it moves from questions about minority mobilization and the dynamics of inter-ethnic relations on the ground to um, what external actors, what mediators can do in light of these dynamics of ethnic bargaining, what they can do to ameliorate these types of conflicts. Um, and the case material for this project came from the observation that in the post-Cold War period, uh, you had Central or Council of, of Europe and the European Union and also NATO that were engaged in um, the, the same types of interventions to manage conflict um, including induced devolution, preventive diplomacy, minority regimes, ethnic partition that had been used by the international community to manage similar conflicts in the same set of states during the League period. And so I wanted to ask if there are lessons of conflict management that can be derived from the League experience that has applications for the current period. Um, and here I consider four uh, broad strategies of conflict management um, these uh, can be grouped into um, the, the top two strategies of cooperative strategies, um, where the method of implementation is, uh, is cooperative. It's, um, uh, it is in no way um, coercing either side of the conflict um, to um, cooperate. And then the second two, um, coercive interventions. And these map onto, in the first case, um, strategies that can be used for conflict prevention, and the last two strategies uh, are used for post-war reconstruction. So these are used for two different stages of um, conflict. Um, in the first case, preventive diplomacy and minority regimes and conditionality, you have external actors that are intervening in, to induce majority governments to implement integrationist minority rights in order to improve ethnic relations on the ground and head off potential conflict. Um, similarly, interventions um, undertaken uh, cooperatively in order to induce majority governments to devolve power from the center to minority regions in order to answer um, demands for national self-determination. Um, so these are both intended to head off um, sectarian conflict. The final two are kind of mere opposites of one another. 
In these cases, ethnic reintegration basically uses a minority refugee return um, as well as property restitution, um, social and um, economic programs in order to reintegrate um, ethnic groups that have been divided by sectarian war. Um, so the, and thus the term ethnic reintegration, which generally requires a coercive intervention, as we can see in the case of Bosnia. And then the final one, which many of you I, I'm sure are familiar with, uh, ethnic partition, uh, which is basically the use of territorial adjustment, possibly state creation, um, as well as population transfers for minorities that are stranded on uh, the wrong side of the ethnic divide in order to complete the ethnic separation that occurred during war and thereby remove incentives for further violence. Okay. And I'm not going to go into this, but this is basically how um, they map out. Um, if, if you look at basically the two components of interventions of conflict management, they consist of domestic institutions, which are either integrationist or segregationist, uh, and, uh, and the methods of implementing them um, by external actors, which are either co cooperative or coercive. Um, and then under each of these um, strategies, I list cases that I'm looking at from the interwar and the post-Cold War period. You'll notice um, that in the case of ethnic reintegration, there are no cases from the interwar period. This is a strategy that is entirely new and uh, um, possibly, well, there are no lessons to draw from the league experience in this, in this case, which is interesting in and of itself. Um, right. So the provisional finding here is that background security is absolutely essential for the success of these strategies. Um, and it's a different type of background security um, for, uh, for the cooperative inter interventions that are aimed at conflict prevention versus the coercive interventions aimed at post-war reconstruction. In the case of the cooperative interventions, um, basically what's required is a stable regional environment which basically requires um, a, a kind of a peace pact between the major regional actors, um, after which and under, under which conditions um, the conflict can be more effectively managed by external actors. For post-war um, reconstruction, um, the background security is more demanding requirement. Um, this is domestic security that must be uh, provided by external uh, mediators, and this is because you know, with, with the, in the process of um, ethnic war, basically all institutions that regulated ethnic relations have been destroyed, and so uh, it, it's, it's necessary for international actors to intervene in order to implement new institutions on the ground that can reconfigure ethnic relations in the post-war period. So clearly this requires a much greater commitment of resources by the international community and as, as, a, as a consequence, uh, this probably should not be engaged in unless the international community is uh, quite certain that it is willing to make this, this considerable commitment, which will in most cases last for many years. Um, and this is basically, I'm nearing the end here, uh, a kind of an illustration of what I'm talking about. Um, this, uh, the connection here with ethnic bargaining is the insight that co conflict typically occurs from the outside in. 
And here the hypothesis is that peace must uh, proceed from the outside in as well. And so the idea is that majority-minority relations cannot be stabilized unless they are nested in a stable regional environment, which in turn is nested within a stable global environment. And any destabilization on either of those two levels may uh, negatively impact um, the relations between the majority and the minority on the sub-state level. And, uh, and just to illustrate this principle, and this is a final slide, which I'm not going to go into, but um, this is a, just a list of uh, many of the most entrenched uh, ethnic conflicts in the post-Cold War, or not, sorry, the post-World uh, War II period. And, um, and basically, I think that this list suggests that um, many of the longest, bloodiest, most entrenched conflicts are themselves embedded in very entrenched regional uh, conflicts that in many cases um, came before um, the, the ethnic conflicts themselves. And so um, the idea then is that when agreements are struck between these regional adversaries, at this point, minority-majority relations or tensions will subside, allowing for more effective conflict management. And so in other words, we're unlikely to solve any minority-majority conflict uh, in, in, unless and until um, nested security is achieved um, both on the regional and on the global levels. And I will end with that. Um, should we turn on? Yeah. yeah. Uh, yes. Hi. Uh, you certainly make a very convincing point that in other countries are very important for the solutions to the war. Could you go back to your story of the Soviet and that fought for sales? Okay. Um, I found the story very convincing, but what bothers me here is that you only have one actor, one national actor. So if you were not do doing that, what would happen? Well, the green, the green square would disappear, the state of peace. Because if the minority is weak, then the majority has no reason to give them any rights. Right? So you know, typically, you cannot have both strong simultaneously. Right? One has to be dominated, one has to be dominated. So what happens in that green? In that green? Well, what happens is that we brought in a new intervention, a new variable, the French and the British, look on the path, right? And in a sense, which manipulates this Czechoslovak majority. So you end up with what in Gambia would be a very, a very cutting, you know, a very sharp edge equilibrium, which should never survive. Ends up surviving because Czechoslovakia is totally controlled by the, and the German Austria, by the league itself and the France and the British. Okay, uh, let's see if I can answer this as concisely. I can. Um, I think my, my main answer to this gets back to the way that I conceptualize uh, the ethnic bargaining occurring between these three actors that are embedded in this ethnic bargaining framework. 
The idea is that actually the majority, neither the majority nor the lobby actor is truly responding to um, the actions of the minority. Uh, and, uh, and actually this is an empirical, uh, this is an empirical point that you can see that many, many, many uh, countries or lobby actors around the world do not intervene uh, even when their minorities are, or their co-ethnics are suffering incredible repression, possibly even, uh, you know, annihilation. Uh, the case springs to mind of Albania, for example, and the Albanians that were ethnically cleansed from Kosovo um, in, the, in the run-up to the NATO, or actually during the NATO conflict. Um, and the same can be said for the majority. The majority actually does not make a determination whether it will enact minority legislation based on what the minority is doing, but actually due to other pressures, such as what you were suggesting in, this, uh, in that case, um, Locarno conditions. Um, in today's uh, cases, this is you know, EU conditionality, NATO conditionality, that have um, created incentives for the majority to act uh, minority legislation. This is coming from the outside. This is not coming from a, a sort of a reaction to conditions on the ground. Um, and so I, I think if you look at most cases, you'll see that the impetus for um, the shifts in um, the actions of the majority and the lobby actor are, are coming not from the minority but from uh, outside um, actors. And this is why I leave the um, sort of the origins of these shifts as exogenous, because I think they can come from uh, a whole range of different sources. I know that. But are you willing to generalize that to all cases? Yeah. I mean, I'm willing to be challenged. I mean, challenge me. Yeah. That's a really good question. Uh, I don't. I don't think there is necessarily always a bright line, except for. Uh, well, I mean, I, I think the minorities are looking for these bright lines, right? And this is where kind of these signals uh, come into play of descending order of credibility if the majority lobby actors engage in a sort of uh, a pact that's enforceable that commits them to a certain set of policies, um, then I think that is a bright line, right? Um, if if uh, the public officials that represent either the lobby actor or the uh, national governments are making certain sort of claims or they're enacting certain policies, these are signals as well, but they're not as credible. Uh, a signal of shifting um, uh, intent by these actors as you know, these, these more sort of binding um, commitments that they, they enter into. But good question. So there's a question over, yes? Uh, we talked a little bit more about the material at the end. Mm -hmm. um, uh, perhaps folks, you, you could talk basically the outside has to do with it in some respects. Could you expand on that a little bit? In the case of Bosnia, mm -hmm. there's been essentially zero, I mean, literally zero ethnic violence in like 25, 15 years. Mm -hmm. Yes. So why, 
why that we well, I think the, the, the lack of violence in the case of Bosnia is actually a perfect sort of um, empirical support for this notion that, uh, you know, if you don't actually have Croatia and Serbia intervening on behalf of their proxy actors or co-ethnics, right, exactly, they're no longer doing this, right? They, they have no incentive to do this. Um, they, they each want to get into NATO, into um, the EU. There's no incentive for them to engage in this type of behavior. That doesn't mean that they aren't engaging in certain sort of policies under the radar um, that is often called silent ethnic cleansing. Um, this is happening, and this is a form of violence, you could argue. Um, but, uh, but the problem is that there's like zero violence. It's not like there's not big Right, yes. No, I don't think so. No, and I think that your um, article, uh, the 2000 article, explains this perfectly. Um, there are, uh, the, among people who know Bosnian case very well, they get upset when you talk about it as though it's a civil war. They say, no, it has nothing to do with um, ethnic tensions on the ground at all. This was basically the result of intervention by Croatia and Serbia. Um, they were the cause. The Bosnians tried to basically keep things together, eventually failed. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, you remove that. Why would there be any violence necessarily? I don't think we disagree, actually. Okay. All right. <laughs> Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So if you have your policy conclusion at the end of your when you talk about you have to have discussion for this book and you have the moral hazard question. So wouldn't to some extent if you have a repressive regime, wouldn't it still behoove an outside group to maybe be supportive if you're not necessarily going to get to escape because isn't there some questions about the path you take to get from I guess you labeled it box one to box four? Oh, sure, yeah, and this is, uh, this I go into in the case of Moravians and, and Slovaks, this comparative study of the two very different paths taken by these national groups where there were no lobby actors, right? And here, basically, the model reduces to a dyadic bargaining game between um, the center and the two different groups, um, and they do have very different relationships, the Slovaks and the Czechs versus Moravians and the Czechs. Mm -hmm. If there's another lobby actor, and that's the ally of the majority, you know, if you look at this historically, I mean, England in the 19th century protected the Ottoman mm -hmm. Empire against, you know, all sorts of claims of beating on mm -hmm. Christians. Czechoslovakia yes. did have an alliance with France. Yes. Yes. It didn't yes. End until 1938. Right. Uh, although but they Serbia, they felt it had been eviscerated, though. I mean. Well. Mm -hmm. decision making 
Yes. Right. Yes. 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 Exactly. Yeah. Especially if it's a small state. Has an ally provides sanction, yes. if you will, right. or yes. security sanction, right. to do whatever it's going to do. Right. To what extent does that not counterbalance? Thinking of the League of Nations, you know, Czechoslovakia mm-hmm. was a leaderspeed in the 1920s. Was it what? It was, it was a beloved mm-hmm. of, of Geneva. You know, Venice mm-hmm. was the anything to mark mm-hmm. the machinery. Because, after all, it was a pillar of mm-hmm. the system. Mm-hmm. So, in a sense, the lobbyists themselves Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Um, and this is why I very cleverly kept the preferences of these uh, actors exogenous. Um, I, I think that the sources for um, the, the interest in signaling uh, repressive intent uh, on the side of the majority and supportive intent on the side of the lobby actor can come from a number of different sources. Um, the main point is that this is, I, I'm looking at it from the point of view of the minority. How does a minority choose its behavior? Typically, the minority is no, looking no further than who, which actors have direct and immediate relationship with it. it in a way, it almost doesn't matter where uh, the impetus for, let's say, liberalization on the part of the, of the majority or um, lack of uh, intervention on the part of the lobby actor is from the, for the purposes or from the point of view of the minority, it's all the same. Uh, whatever they, meant they happen to be signaling, they're going to respond in certain predictable ways. Um, and this is actually uh, kind of, this insight that you're talking about is sort of where um, I uh, come at with, with this, that, that in fact there are these sort of layers of, um, of security, layers of relationships that you have to take into account um, when you're trying to understand the conditions under which minorities will radicalize and when they'll moderate and when tensions will um, subside and when they will remobilize. So. Uh, wouldn't you call that a structural argument? Yes. I don't like I don't like labels. <laughs> I'm just making an argument about minority radicalization. I don't care where. I'm borrowing liberally from all sources. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Seliger. Uh, hmm. Oh, you've caught me. Yeah, I, uh, I wonder if I should um, defer. Yes, right. I think he was a, wasn't he a deputy in the Reichsrat? Um, as, as was, yeah, Lodgman. Most of these um, Sudeten German leaders after um, the end of um, World War I and the creation of Czechoslovak State actually were involved in the earlier um, uh, imperial, um, well, you could say power structure, but people who were in the parliament. Um, and and, and that's, that's relevant, obviously, because who are the Germans going to look to as a representative but those that had represented their interests under the previous regime? Mm-hmm. Did you rely on secondary sources, by historians or on primary sources? And what did you do 
Okay. Um, I, I tried to be as uh, resourceful as I possibly could. In the case of, a, of Czechoslovakia, um, I, I, I can read both Czech and German, and I was able to take advantage of a considerable amount of primary materials, much of which I found in the Czech, well, now the Czech National Archives, um, you know, and also material that had been published during that time, but, you know, were no, there was no real translation um, into English, so I was able to look at those, but I also took advantage of very good um, you know, secondary literature on the topic, of which there is a considerable amount. Uh, I would never ever, uh, I mean, these guys who are, you know, engaging in all this hard work, I mean, I'm going to try to free ride off of this as much as I possibly can. Um, but also, yeah, not to um, um, ignore the insights of people who know these cases far, far better than I do from, because they have spent years and years kind of investigating these cases. So um, the cases where, uh, you know, I don't speak Romanian. Uh, my Hungarian is terrible. Um, so you're being so generous. <laughs> really appreciate that. <laughs> um, I, I used a lot of um, interpreters um, in my interviews, um, which who were who not very expensive um, and, and who were interesting subjects themselves. So I, I don't know if I answered your question, but, yeah. You also heard Sedaine Land 2 in 1992. I'm sorry, say it again? Sedaine Land 2 in 1992. Uh, oh, the conflict. Yeah, the conflict. Yeah, sure, okay. Uh-huh. Uh, in that case, you didn't have any, if any of that pressure, it mostly did not separate. Uh, nonetheless, it happened. Oh, oh, you're talking about the Slovak. Oh, okay. I was getting confused. Ah, got it. Yes, yes, yes. Um, yes. So how, how do I explain that? Uh, well, um, I think actually my story uh, that I, I kind of run this through the ethnic bargaining model, it's actually consistent with most accounts of that um, episode, which is essentially that the Slovaks overplayed their hand. Um, you did actually have extensive uh, evidence of preferences of some type of autonomy. No, no one was very clear about what exactly that would entail. And, uh, and this basically uh, encouraged uh, um, the elites to use this in order to get more and more and more concessions. Uh, I don't think Mechiar had any idea that Klaus is going to uh, um, let, let Slovakia go um, so easily. Um, and, and there are accounts of people who are in these actual, in the, in the actual negotiations in the final period um, that spoke of uh, Mechiar with this absolutely shocked expression on his face that he, and then absolutely tried to sort of, you know, backtrack as much as he possibly could um, because he realized that he had overplayed his hand. Um, no, 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 but this is basically a bargaining dynamic between uh, the the majority in this case the Czechs and and the Slovaks, um, right? Which isn't to say that the result, which is secession in this case, is something that the the, uh, the public wanted because in fact they didn't. 
Right, but this is the, this is a result of bargaining that basically uh, takes place under conditions of these this, these massive nationalist pressures on the side of the Slovaks, um, and then just this miscalculation. Which Kurds? Oh, in Turkey, for example, that's, that's what I mean. Okay. And there's any number of people in Burma who probably don't have any real meaningful Burma mm -hmm. action. But I would suggest perhaps there's a kind of back to the wall situation when you get to conflict even without that. Um, well, I guess my response to that is that, the, yeah, there are all kinds of sources of leverage. I mean, if you look at uh, the Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka, um, this is actually a case where uh, a lot of the initial source of leverage came from um, over the border, um, from the Indian state of Tamil Nadu, and uh, and this this basically dried up, you know, especially by the early 1990s with the assassination. Um, but by then, they had actually formed a very elaborate sort of um, web of fundraising, of you know, criminal activity, uh, other ways of basically um, funding um, the movement, um, which they've relied on up until you know, recently. I think the recent events are very, very interesting from that point of view. Um, because there is evidence that um, it was due, at least in part, to Sri Lanka's uh, destruction of um, these uh, gun smuggling boats that they had been using in order to get their um, ammunition, as well as an international crackdown on the um, fundraising efforts um, by the lobby group. So the, here's where diasporas actually um, end up mattering. Um, and diasporas end up mattering critically for a lot of these um, very well organized, very well funded groups that you see around the world today. I want to thank Erin uh, Jen, Erin Jenny, right? This is the book for those of you who want to read it. Uh, you can see the rational choice further, uh, Danielle, here if you'd like. Um, before I, I give a final thanks to Erin, I want to um, thank Ted Hoff who chaired the committee this year who selected this book. And Ted's agreed, actually, to take the lead again next year. Uh, he's a glutton. Why is this a good book? <laughs> and over the next uh, several weeks, Ted and I will be putting a committee together. So this is a very public announcement for volunteers. And if you're interested, uh, Kathy now has a substantial amount of work. We have a lot of nominees. They come from multiple disciplines. And the work happens over the summer under Ted's uh, fearless leadership. So if you'd like to be part of the committee this year, please see Ted or me, because we're going to have to decide on this committee in the near future. Now, please, thank you. Erin, it was a great talk, a great book. Thank Congratulations. You. Thank, you thank you very, very much. much. This will go on a case but we have several copies of it, so you can always read one of the other copies before we put this one on display. I want to apologize for my blunt. Oh, no, no. He's always like that. Actually, I like oh, your yes, argument. Yes, yes, thank you. Uh, can, yes. can I leave my phone number in case you want to oh, change sure, 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 sure. your plan?